You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where every episode I'll dive deep into the creative minds of your new favorite songwriters, band leaders, and sonic explorers who, like me, have dedicated their lives to traveling the world, telling their strange stories to anyone who'll listen. My name is Zach Lupiton. Let's go. show, I bring you my conversation with one of the most exciting roots pop bands working today, an affable and endlessly creative quartet formed in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that is made up of fiddle player Libby Ruddenborough, mandolin player Jacob Sharp, guitarist Joseph Terrell, and bassist Wood Robinson. Ladies and gents, I bring you Mipso. I record this episode exactly two weeks before Election Day, as my hometown Dodgers are about to either blow the World Series or bring a championship home, and while the fickle polls seem to be cheerfully tilting blue in swing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Virginia, and even Arizona and Georgia, and yes, even that strange tropical appendage they call Florida, have you looked at the polls in North Carolina recently? It maybe sums up that knot that is curling in many of our stomachs right now. It is dead even, completely split down the middle. And from the green foothills of the Black Mountains to the rugged coast of the Outer Banks, people are trying to make up their minds. That hasn't always been so easy. It was not even 75 years after it became a state in 1789 that North Carolina declared its secession from the Union on May 20th, 1861. And after that terrible civil war that killed more Americans than all of our future wars combined, North Carolina was restored to the Union on June 25th, 1868. Yes, back and forth and back and forth they go. And despite the fractious mood of their ever-swingy, tangy, vinegary home state, it's quite an exciting time for Mipso, who have quietly become Tar Heel State celebrities. Indeed, I was lucky to catch up with Libby and Jacob, she down in North Carolina, he up in New York, to discuss their lushly orchestrated self-titled record, which just came out last week. And maybe it's hyperbole, but to me, this record is a soft rock modern classic waiting to be discovered. Look, it is really hard to find a group where every member can effortlessly sing lead and write gender-bending songs that fit seamlessly on six albums and counting in under ten years. Well, there is one group that I can think of that is back atop the charts this week. Ever heard of those TikTok stars Fleetwood Mac? And if you close your eyes, you can really hear the direct bloodline between those 1970s hitmakers and Mipso today. There is something about these guys that everybody can love. With their bluegrassy instrumentation and easy harmonies, they can appeal to folk-fest-loving moms and dads in sandals, while also somehow gaining the respect of their edgier kids and grandkids who could appreciate their subtly political turns of phrase and playful, gender-ambiguous, neon-tinted wardrobe. Sonically, they have something for everyone. I learned anything from our Zoom conversation, it's that the slower pace of this last year and a half has been a gift in several ways. Even with some startling success on the streaming platforms, this band is road-weary, so this unwanted hiatus it has allowed them to catch their breath, to hole up and write more as one unit, one collective songwriter. The result is a work of true acoustic mastery, a collection of deceptively soft songs that leap out of your speakers with a renewed fury and demand repeat listening. Please stick around to the end of the episode to hear mandolinist Jacob Sharp introduce his favorite contribution to the record, Just Want to Be Loved. 
Oh, and real quick, a little good news for you. My group Dust Bowl Revival has officially announced the return of our online music gathering, Sway at Home Fest. Our fourth lineup drops October 29th and 30th and features previous show on the road guests like Tim O'Brien, Dave Bromberg, Mike and Ruthie of the Mammals, and rising new wave country star Aubrey Sellers. Also, Oliver Wood of the Wood Brothers will be there. Follow the band on Facebook and YouTube to watch. And selfishly, I must tell you that my little side project, which we're calling Patio Club, will be having its debut live set for you on this festival so check it out dustbowlrevival.com for more and if you love this show kindly leave us a nice review on itunes and you can donate znlupatin at gmail.com on paypal to keep this show going you may notice that it's free please help out oh one last thing you may notice that jacob sounds like he's coming through a spy phone at the end of this episode that's because zoom is a tricky beast and so without further ado here they are now the pride of the Tar Heel state Mipso. Where you from, she said Staring a hole right through my traveler's halo A worker bee on the threshold In the throes of it I ducked in from a dark cloud Before I could think A return to order I glanced a messenger on her shoulder A sort of dog in ink but just a second too long And I said, hey, Coyote How long can you stand in the doorway? Hey, Coyote Paint me another way home I'm Libby Rodenbow and I'm a fiddle player and singer in Mipso. And I'm Jacob Sharp. I play mandolin and some acoustic guitar and also sing for Mipso. So you guys are not in the same place anymore. Obviously, um, this is the special week where your self-titled record just came out. Um, But it's increasingly difficult for us multi-person groups to ever be in the same place safely. Was it a nice reunion to finally see each other this last week oh yeah definitely i mean i think it's it's very surreal when you get together with any group of people these days so there's like uh the niceness and the surrealness are kind of like competing for the the dominant impression that i have when we're together but yeah it's really great it's it was great to be together on like the day of the album release and be able to like physically cheers and like you know give each other hugs and stuff how are you feeling jacob with the new record just dropping you know it definitely libby's right i'm happy you said that because i similarly felt emotionally fuller i think because we were together leading up to the record and we actually got together two weeks ahead of it and learned the record for the first time you know we recorded most of it like this time last year um and we had all these plans to kind of have a spring early summer hiatus to get in shape and so a big fear of mine ahead of releasing in 2020 was was less like the oddity of not being on tour and more it emotionally feeling like we had never put this thing out because we never got to share it and learn it together. So it, it was rewarding to have that time together for sure. And we, we were lucky too. We had in July two weeks where we got together and made music videos. So we've kind of, after the craziness started, um, we hunkered down like everyone did. But then once it felt safe and possible, we have found ways to to have kind of like band camp this year. I had a similar situation with our Dust Bowl Revival new record where we did a thing where we didn't actually know our own songs going into the album release tour. 
This was in, uh, you know, a, an earlier time in our history, mm-hmm. February. Mm-hmm. Um, and we decided to really hold off on playing them live for people to not have them be worn out and kind of... Oh, yeah. And when you don't play things live and then you all of a sudden have to learn them fresh, you realize that they're almost bigger than you, these songs. They're not yours anymore. They, like, exist in the world and you have to cover your own music like they're cover songs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Was there a song on the new record that was particularly tricky to recreate in person? Well, some of them, some of them we had recorded like more or less live. And so those were at least a few of us, at least a few of the band members probably like remembered the, that experience. Um, but I'm trying to think like maybe it, some of the harder ones were like the really like poppy rocking ones where it's just like until you feel comfortable in a song like that, it's really hard to like play confidently and you have to play confidently for a certain type of like brash song. So I'm thinking about like Hourglass, which is one of the singles that we were like, okay, this one has to be good because we're like pushing the song and, and you, and it's a really confident sounding song. And when you're playing it for like the second or third time, you're really just like acting to, 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 uh, you know, give people the impression of confidence. Yeah, I would add Like You Never to that. Those are the two from the record where, uh, thankfully, we had like 15 or 20 run-throughs before anybody will hear what it sounded like because there's definitely uh, some new footing to find for, for Mipso in that sonic territory. You've been putting on a mask Did you take a time to find If a man knows when to lie So you recorded mostly uh, at Echo Mountain in Nashville, and you worked with Sando Perry on this, who just created this beautiful, lush soundscape that feels like you're just dropping us into this uh, room with you, and it feels so um, private, this record, like you're telling it to us, but it's only to me directly, you know? which I really appreciate. And I think, you know, you have this unique thing where all of you are singing lead at some point, um, like a new wave bluegrass Fleetwood Mac. Let's just say oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but each one of you brings a different perspective to these songs. Um, do you guys decide who's going to be singing each song ahead of time or or do you each bring a song that you wrote and then you are automatically singing that lead? It's differed by the record. One thing that in approaching this record that definitely separates it from the previous records is that we just had more time, um, substantially more. And it, it was the first time where we weren't squeezing writing and recording sessions in between massive tours where everyone rightfully so was protecting that precious space of being home and maybe less than willing to like commit to another couple days to feel something out. So this time we wrote a lot of these songs together. There's more co-writing and even for songs that were pretty fully done, there was more of a willingness to come in and say, let's blow this up and let it be something different um, than I think we'd ever done before. So, but that said, we still generally knew who was singing what parts ahead of the main live band tracking. 
So let's let's talk about that opening track real quick. Uh, Never knew you were gone because I instantly was transported into James Taylor's early work. Oh yeah, in this sort of like dreamy, mellow vibe, but like with an edge, like with a little knife holding behind his back. Tell me a little bit about how. Uh, the emotion of that song came together. Yeah, well, the James Taylor reference, super apt, because Joseph, who wrote that song, is um, like a James Taylor acolyte, I would say, um, especially because we're both from, we're all from Chapel Hill. Um, and he grew up on that music. And this song, I think, I agree with you, there's like a darkness in James Taylor that's hard to square with a lot of the sounds in his music. Um, like knowing about his own drug addiction and things in his past. Um, and even like things like his potential, maybe he was a potentially abusive partner. Like there's things about him that complicate his, yeah, yeah. There's things about him that really complicate the like, um, mom and dad's like dinnertime music vibe that he kind of has in our culture. And that song I think the, I mean, Joseph's writing kind of did it for us. It, it suggested like that kind of like cheerful violin melody. Um, the chords seem to call for something like that. But the lyrics are about, yeah, first about a, a child going missing and then about thinking about like the whole human species disappearing from the planet. And it's dark, although it's also, there's also something nice in it, like, the planet would just keep on living without us, which is a sort of like uh, both terrifying and beautiful concept that we've talked about a lot as a band in the recent years as that's been like, that's felt more of like an imminent possibility for our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes. Well, and there's just something so freeing in finding peace with realizing that you're inconsequential, you know? And like, I think for us too, on like in making music there's so much of just like talking about yourself and self-promotion and it's a healthy reminder in songs like this and just all the time to be like oh yeah this doesn't matter like hopefully people find meaning in this but it doesn't matter um beyond that beyond someone else finding meaning there there isn't much importance that's going to like really shift the equation of humanity here i think when i think about that chorus when we sing it gone into silvery fire I think about getting cremated and how that's like very spooky to think about your own death. But also like, I don't know if other people feel this way, but it's always sounded comforting to me to be cremated, like, you know, back to dust and just being like scattered out on the wind. So that, that is what is in my mind when I'm singing harmony on that line. If there's a place in the world that you could be scattered when you pass away, where would it be? I think it would probably be, well, I have two good options. It would be, I think it would be here in North Carolina where I'm from. And I'm torn between the mountains and the ocean, which we're fortunate to have both of here. And those are both really romantic ideas to me, like off the top of uh, a mountain in Western North Carolina or right out to sea. I'll I'll be fine with either. I'll leave that up to uh, whoever I leave behind. Yeah, I would go. I'm from the mountains of North Carolina, and there's a particular mountain that, the edge of which you look right over the particular lake that I grew up on. It would be a steady toss into that gust. Careful, don't let the screen door slam. 
last spring in the middle might bite the hand The moon's full, there's light from the hiding sun There's flowers in the carpet, but dad's staring bullets at some cowboys and Indians Gone in a silvery fight Going back to James Taylor real quick, I had this funny moment where I gave blood to the Red Cross a couple weeks ago, and it was at a VFW hall in Culver City, and I walk in, and the place is just rocking out to James Taylor at full volume <laughs> as people are giving blood, and I'm like super confused. It's like, is this like a, a mom and dad dance party as I'm giving blood? And I asked the technician, who's like a young Latino guy, I'm like, who's pumping these jams? He's like, this is my playlist, man. Wow. He's like 23-year-old guy from like Mexico. And he's just like, this is my jam. There's There's some good stuff in there. There's some good stuff in like... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't know this if it wasn't for Joseph because I definitely would have thought I would have like my little indie rock teenage shelf would have like really poo pooed James Taylor, but not for Joseph Terrell, who was like, nah, there's there's really good stuff in there. And it's true. Well, if you read Carly Simon's autobiography, which I highly recommend, you'll learn that while these mellow melodies are going out into the world, he's also being put away in an insane asylum, Mm -hmm. you know. So there's some real uh, spooky stuff going on in James Taylor's early work. No yeah. doubt. So you guys are, are you guys both born and raised in, in North Carolina? Yeah. Yeah, the whole band is different parts. Um, although Libby and Wood are from the same town and Joseph's from kind of the neighbor town there in central North Carolina. But all of us grew up in North Carolina in um, not in big cities, small, small towns to small cities would be the vibe. And uh, then met at, in Chapel Hill and that's where the band has kind of been based since. Is there a North Carolina roots genre onto itself? Because I feel like in just a very small sample size, having talked to Mandolin Orange on this podcast, I feel like there is a connection between both of your guys' music where it's like you're synthesizing this Appalachian string music but in a more accessible, warm pop style, you know? I mean, your first record... It was called Dark Holler Pop. I mean, you're putting it forward, right? You're not trying oh, yeah. to be in a traditional bluegrass band. I don't think you ever mm-hmm. were. Well, first of all, it's apt that you mentioned Mandolin Orange because it was Andrew Marlin who came up with that name, Dark Holler Pop, when, oh, really? he, was, when he was producing that record for us. Um, and so I think growing up, uh, or like not growing up, but growing up as a band um, when we were in college and having Mandolin Orange in the same area, they were a good model for us of like, they were, they were, I think that it, honesty is what I like about what they do. Um, you know, they weren't trying to like masquerade as like hillbillies coming out into the big city with, you know, b- wide eyes. Um, they played and, wrote in ways that were true to their life experience, but with also a lot of love and respect for traditional music. And I think having them as a model made us feel like we could do that too. Um, 
And I think even at the beginning, we had a little more, um, we were trying out how it would feel to lean more into the traditional. And maybe we were like, mm, toying with the idea of calling ourselves a bluegrass band. But we quickly, as we started writing and recording music, it was like, well, that's not exactly what we're doing. It's just, that's the instrumentation we have. And without any disrespect to that genre, because in fact, I think it's with respect for that genre that we wouldn't call ourselves a bluegrass band because we love bluegrass and that's not what we're doing. If there's a fiddle and a mandolin in a band, as I've learned for the last 10 years, somehow you are automatically a bluegrass band. It has been a struggle from the very beginning with Dust Bowl Revival. And we've had horn section from the beginning and they still think we're a bluegrass band. Now, to be fair... I think the Grateful Dead and Olden in the Way and, and that sort of bridge between rock and roll, soul, roots music, bluegrass, that is all connected, which is awesome. I think it's just that we've seen that the folk world and the bluegrass world, jam grass world, they've been very inclusive of our music and probably your music. But the pop and rock world, which I think we feel almost more connected to, wants nothing to do with us, <laughs> you know? And you can see it right in, in Spotify's playlisting, right? Like, it doesn't matter what type of song we release, they only put us in folk, right? It doesn't matter how crazy the drums and the keyboards are. They're like, yeah, but I see a, I see a fiddle. And you, y- and you have the name Revival uh, in right. your band That's name. That's our own fault. Well, that that is your own fault, but it also is like... It just shows how, like, the very superficial level at which um, most, like, of the industry side of music making conceives of bands, you know, as if bands aren't as complex as people are and as complex as people's taste is. And evolve. Things evolve. Even, like, Fleetwood Mac, going back to them, they were a blues rock band, right? I mean, they were straight-up rockin' Chicago-style blues and there's still people that are like, man, Peter Green was the best part of Fleetwood Mac. When they started getting all those hits, like, I was out, you know? And meanwhile, Rumors is in the top 10 in the pop charts again this crazy. week. Crazy. Because of TikTok. Yeah, it's I feel crazy, like they're pro- I feel like they're, they're not, uh, Fleetwood Mac is probably not, like, wringing their hands wondering if they made the right choice. <laughs> if we go back to your, uh, your Dark Holler pop record, um, I was actually jamming out to the song Border Tonight over and over again. Um, And it made me miss just traveling and seeing the mundane awesomeness of small town America and um, having that small thrill when you go into some place you've never been. That was a super early Joseph Terrell. I mean, it's funny, the question you asked about um, like North Carolina's brand of a folk kind of, which I, I feel like it, I'm happy you highlighted the earlier Grateful Dead connections. Cause to me, it's like, it extends well out of that, of this kind of like ancient understanding within rock music that some of the tenets of old time folk and, um, bluegrass rhythmic components, like really elevate something. Joe at that time that we were writing Dark Color Pop was doing a study of bluegrass music, legit, like for his degree and the history of it. And so, and he's a type writer who can 
who so loves that type of project. So he was both looking into how do I write like the perfect bluegrass song? And then also Borders Night, I remember very specifically coming out of a several like late night listening sessions from early gigs, listening to stuff way afield from bluegrass and him being like, I think there's a way I could connect these things. Um, and he's kind of always been good at that, that type of hybrid project song. I've been wasting away this tar paper summer, floating right in fall. Maybe a Tijuana winter and buy hot spray. Give me something to hold on. Cause there's a lady in red, I can't get out of my head. She shines like the moonlight. And this fine senorita, just as soon as I meet her, I'm dead no love at first sight. Nobody needs me here. I'm headed clear out of sight. When I say I'm leaving today, crossing the border tonight. Is there a place that you wish you could travel to right now if you had the chance? Uh, Oaxaca, I, I bet, is the answer for both of us. In Mexico? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my spot. I, I, I'm dreaming of figuring out a way to sneak down there again this winter. I would say the band has a shared fascination with Mexico. Um, and Oaxaca for me is kind of Mexico distilled. I know I'm trying to debate whether to meet my folks down in Baja where we usually go for Christmas and they're going and my sister's going and I'm just like, I don't know if it's really like the time to get on a plane, but I'm also... They would be traveling from the States to get down there? From Chicago. Yeah. I took my first plane wow. ride yesterday since um, pandemic hit. and How was it? It felt fine. I mean, I was flying regionally from North Carolina back to New York, and the airport in Raleigh, um, RDU, was totally empty. Everyone was wearing masks. Delta, like, detailed how they cleaned the plane and gave you more cleaning supplies if you wanted to do that on your own time. New York was totally empty, too. It was just, you know, I was on edge, so I don't know. It made me think, would a six-hour flight be enjoyable? Definitely not. And is there more risk being on it longer? For sure. But the regional thing felt fine. It was more like getting to the airport and being in, in it that I was concerned about. It just feels like, you know, in the absence of good leadership, especially it's so tough to know what direction things are going to go. And I don't feel like I get clear information on like the progress nationally anyway. So, mm -hmm. well, so, so hard to make plans. Totally. But I also look, you know, I haven't seen my family for the whole year, you know? Yeah. It's really, especially for people who like us, who are used to seeing every part of the country twice a year, it's really making distances feel longer. Like I, I feel really lucky that I live an hour away from my family, but I know people who have family like on the West Coast, but they're normally in a normal year, they would be like, well, I'll see you next time I'm touring there. So they just had a built in part of their life that brought them out there. And now they're like, Oh, what if like one of my parents gets sick? Like, how will I even make it there? Do you feel that um, next year will be back to normal at some point, or do you think we're still going to be adjusting into a whole new territory as touring bands? Because you guys are touring what a hundred days a year, maybe or more? Probably closer to like one. 130 dates or something like that. Is That's that right, about what we do. Jacob? Yeah. Yeah. And last year was a big decrease to get to that point. And we were, it's actually funny thinking about going into this year. I mean, the record before this one almost broke us up because we were living 
our lives on the road a little too intensely. I think not that not that we were doing anything intense on the road, but we were just out on it too often. And we were looking forward to this year of being the first one where we could really scale back. And so it's ironic to have scaled as far back as we are to be missing the intensity that we ran from, you know. But I think, to your question, I think we're going to be adjusting all of next year. And I've definitely adjusted my expectations recently again from, you know, in March being like, okay, yeah, I guess we'll play in like November. And then in April being like, okay, it's definitely next spring. And then over the summer thinking, yeah, well, summer festivals will happen in 2021. And now I'm like, maybe next fall we'll, we'll tour for real. I think we'll play shows, but I don't think there'll be any ability to regionally or nationally scale out a full tour. Yeah, I'm just worried that people won't come to shows as much. I mean, some people will, but I'm worried that there'll be enough nervousness, even assuming that we either get numbers under control or get a vaccine. Um, I think there'll be so many people who are like, I'm not going to chance it and go out to a club, you know? It's hard enough to get people to show up on a Tuesday in Wyoming, you know? Yeah, I I think next year's going to be a lot lot of sliding expectations. And I didn't realize that when you uh, released Edge's Run that you had a pretty gnarly car crash that made you guys question a lot of stuff. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, we were on the way to a gig in North Carolina, and we happened to be traveling in our minivan, um, which at that time we had been renting bigger vans for most of our tours, but this was like a one-off gig. So we are like, we'll just take the old minivan. And really luckily, Jacob and Wood were coming separately because they were already in Western North Carolina. And so it was Joseph and me and our drummer, Jan, in this minivan, and then a bunch of gear in the back. And we were on Interstate 40, which all touring musicians will be familiar with. And we were at a total stop for construction. And a guy was... I don't know, asleep or on his phone or something and hit us from behind at going, you know, highway speed, 65 miles an hour. And, um, the minivan was really crushed. Um, and so luckily there was nobody in the back because the back was, I mean, there wouldn't have been a person left. And, um, Joseph hit his head on the steering wheel. He was driving and the airbag didn't um, deploy. So he hit his head really hard on the steering wheel. Yeah. Um, but other than that, and that, and he had a big gash in his forehead, which was very scary at the time because it was, there was blood everywhere. But when we got to the hospital within a few hours, it was clear that nobody was seriously injured and we had a ton of broken gear and we actually had a really extended battle with the insurance company of the other driver, um, where we still didn't get compensated for all the stuff because they disagreed with our valuation of vintage instruments because they were trying to say that these instruments depreciate. And we're like, no, they very much appreciate. Um, so it, it was a, a headache, but mostly it was such a miracle to be involved in something like that. Like, Driving all the time, I'm sure you have this too, Zach. Like, I'm just like fantasizing all the time about ways that we'll get hurt. Like, it, it just seems likely that if you tour it all the time, if you're in a vehicle like 100 to 200 days out of every year for many hours a day, and there's so many crazies on the road, and like not only crazies, but like we all get distracted while driving sometimes, I'm shocked that we have never been hurt before and knock on wood that we'll never be you know hurt worse than we were but it was a 
it was a very intense moment. And then it also made us all kind of, you know, the way these things do recenter and refocus and question, you know, what, what we were doing with our lives. And if we, if we were making the best use of the life that we're still lucky to have. Did you consider truly breaking up? Not, not during that time. Yeah, I think that that I was going to say there's been a lot of articles that have, have come out in the last week that have really clearly tied um, breakup conversations and the wreck together. And it really was that we were thinking about breaking up before the wreck and the wreck kind of not, and we were on the path towards um, like not resolving our differences, but mutually understanding that this thing was precious and we should recommit to it when the car accident happened. And that solidified those chats and realizations. I think that were already in motion, but it did make us think about, how we want to do this. And, you know, there's a lot of necessary bullshit involved in, um, being a band for money. And I think it lowered our, our like threshold of tolerance for that a little bit because we were like, it's not, you know, it's not worth everything. This song, uh, people change, which, you know, has been heard by a lot of people at this point off of, uh, edges run, um, beautiful song, but it feels almost, it feels like when the singing was recorded that it was after like a, a hard cry, almost like that you had gone through this gauntlet together and had to realize that a lot of the things and the people that you love have changed and that as you grow up and you realize that things aren't going to be as glorious possibly as you thought they would, I think a lot of people in bands when you get a first taste of success, people start coming to your shows, singing your lyrics to you. Festivals are booking you around the world. You think, oh, well, this is always going to be like this. And then things slow down. Fans drift away. Relationships in your life fall apart because you're gone and you can't uh, service their needs in, in the way that most people need you to be present for them. And music is such an overpowering uh, force that I think a lot of us who are compelled to do that every day, that is our first relationship in our lives. And uh, I'm curious if um, each of you have had people who you've lost because of the life that you have chosen. For sure. Uh, yeah, you're tapping into to that song, which is about relationships fading, maybe more so than ending and being able to have a perspective on the shift. And I think that as much as that's about, um, you know, a romantic or a friendship relationship shifting or about actually losing someone, it also can be about the relationship with a thing like music, which shifts also through the course of taking it from the thing that you loved that you did privately to the thing that you shared and depended on for your income and um, it's a, it's hopefully for different people it's about in the year or all of that and definitely some of the specific titchens for us in the band were why during the making of Edges Run and immediately afterwards we were having to reevaluate what we were doing with each other and, and how we were going to keep and if we were going to keep doing it how and, and kind of why used to love you Child. Think about me. 
Well, it's like a family that you guys create, but it's a forced family in a lot of ways. You know, our Dust Bowl Revival crew was up to seven, eight people for many years, and there was almost many groups within the family, factions that would split off, where some people would always side with me or side with Liz or side with Ulf, you know, and, and it's hard to not um, turn against each other at times when these very personal uh, disagreements will come up about how to approach uh, a song that's political, you know. Is this something we want to... Uh, force upon the world our own ideas. Some people would say we have to speak up and other people are like, yeah, but this is a business. We don't want to alienate half of our audience. And you guys being based in the South, um, I think I've never been shy about, you know, which side of the aisle you're on, but do you find there's a tricky balance there about what to share and what not to share? I think we have had to have conversations about where we all align because we're all um, like we're all essentially lefties. But we you know, there's a lot of um, shades of gray within that, especially on specific issues and also on like bigger framing of like, do you believe in reform or do you believe in revolution? Um, Not that I think any one of us thinks we have like a definitive answer to that. But there have been times when we've had to like talk about posts we've made and make sure everybody's on the same page. So there's some amount of compromise that's happening there. We've never talked about um, – well, we have talked about alienating fans, but not really because we're afraid of losing them as fans um, specifically, more because we're afraid that we'll then have – lost the opportunity to address someone who might not be hearing voices from the left otherwise, or I should just say voices from outside the far right. And I think making kind of folky music in the South, there's a lot of people who listen to your music and that's all they do. They don't really engage with your, you know, social media brand frequently. Um, And so, and maybe they don't pay a lot of, do a lot of close reading of your lyrics And so they're not concerned with your political beliefs and they're offended when they find out you have any at all. Um, And I think that you have a unique opportunity, if you can play it right, to potentially reach that person if you don't do it too heavy handedly. Um, I don't know if that's I don't know if it's true or not, but that's a theory we have that we are. And I think we've always operated on, you know, a a basis of honesty about our beliefs but we are it's not our intention to um, shut the door in people's faces because uh, I don't know I I think there's there's people who will always stay on their side for sure but I think there's also there are people in America a very few number of them maybe at this point who are somewhere in the middle or who are not sure what they believe and if we could reach out to that person then that's a pretty unique opportunity. Yeah, it's like if you want to be in my musical universe, it also means viewing me as a full three-dimensional human being with full uh, political thought. But we do have a unique platform to bring people into our minds, you know? And if there's a way, like you said, to do it 
in a way that's not overly preachy and condescending, because um, I think that's what happens with us coastal elites, as they would call us in California, that we come off as being holier than thou and uh, morally superior. And yeah. it's like if you want to actually reach someone, you have to understand why they think the way they do. And that's something that I'm struggling with because my first instinct is how could you support someone who is openly bigoted and trying to take away people's rights? But there's something um, deep in a lot of these small towns where they feel like they've been abandoned and, they've, and no one has listened to them. And I understand that. Like you, you drive through these towns and you could feel the anxiety and the anger and the loss of some sort of way of life that is never coming back. And it's hard to say who is to blame for that. It's Democrats and Republicans across the board. And somehow that fury is embodied in something on the right. And that's really hard to reconcile because it feels like these people that are good, honest, hardworking people are now lost to a proverbial dark side of the force. <laughs> Let's just go Star Wars about it. But um, going back to people change, and obviously when you wrote that song, I think none of this was necessarily factoring in, but you have that line, uh, maybe in 10 years you call me on the telephone wondering if I'm all alone. Remember how we knew each other. It's like these relationships that you've probably had with people you grew up in North Carolina are totally different and have gotten pretty dark maybe. Yeah. And, and like, how do you reconcile those changes in yourself too? You know, if, if you're looking at that moment of realization, it's not only that this other person has changed, but that you've changed too. And, and often that's in really positive ways that you wanted to grow in those directions, you know, but how do you reconcile that space where there used to be none or used to be less? I do think that to the politics side, like, how you talked about small towns resonates with me. And I think most touring musicians who have driven on the specific highways that we all have, but with the frequency that we did, you know, we were less shocked that Trump had the support that he did, even though the polls two weeks out in 2016 were saying otherwise. And since then, I think our evaluation, like Libby saying has kind of been like, this band has never, we've never censored ourselves and we've always been really honest, but we want to continue in recognizing that we have, that we are the type of person in a lot of our fans' lives that maybe it's like the furthest left perspective they hear. We want to share how we're feeling and share how we've changed and like grown in a way that invites them to have that similar realization as opposed to feeling alienated, um, which is, I think, increasingly hard to do in both like the climate and with some of the issues at hand. Um, and yet it'd be a shame, like Libby saying, to like not have those conversations and to just shut a door. I do believe in a future where a large number of Americans who believe that some basic things like we should all be able to live and eat and uh, love each other and, you know, get have enough in our lives to get by and raise our children and be proud of the lives we've made. I, I, I think that we can all or a lot of us at least can come together on that point and see that our world is so far away from that and agree that there are dramatic changes that need to happen. You sing lead on this beautiful song, Your Body, on the new self-titled record. And 
you know, I think you're speaking to this idea of acceptance um, in your body shape, but also your 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 personhood in a world that is often looking to reject non norms. You know, like people want you probably to dress up in a pretty red dress and be the one girl in the band. It's like this tick in our psyche where we're like, oh, there's a girl in the band, so she's going to be the eye candy. And I think you've consistently always done your own thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think about is um, like, what if I do want to wear a beautiful red dress? Now I don't feel like (laughs) I can because I feel like that would, you know, I wouldn't know if that was my own decision or not, you know. And I think that this is true for people, whether or not they're the only girl in a band or, you know, whether or not they're on stage at all. Your decisions about how you present yourself physically never feel like they're just your own. You feel like you have a million voices in your head that are determining that for you. And it's just eternally frustrating. Um, I... So there are days when I feel like very carefree about how I dress. Um, and I actually, as Jacob can attest, I have like more clothes than anyone I know. I love, I love clothes and I love, um, going out into the world in like various costumes. Um, but there's always a context to that that feels, um, you know, I'll, I'll just say not unproblematic. Your body, but your body says it can't make up its mind. Singing the song of your body, but the melody is changing all the time. So you stand at the window, put the bar across the door, and fold up your Can you speak the verse lyrics as a poem for verse two, starting with verse two? Oh, yeah. Because I feel like lyrics are never appreciated as literature in their own right. And I feel like this one should be. True. Okay. um, I I, Hopefully I'll get it right. We just had to (laughs) learn them, so I should know it. Um, I say, and when the blood runs and you wonder if you're ringing like a bell, you can have your fun but you'll never know if you dance for yourself. What does that verse mean to you? I was uh, specifically thinking about a time, or probably multiple times, that I was on stage and wondering if I'd gotten my period and wondering if it was like uh, literally visible to people in the first couple of rows. But it's also about like, can people tell that I'm self-conscious? Can people tell that I'm blushing? Can, can people tell that I'm trying to coach myself through the experience of confidence in real time on stage. And sometimes I think, especially when you're performing a song you've sung a million times and you no longer think about the lyrics consciously, you can have this whole other internal monologue going on and it really pulls you out of the moment, which is difficult. And sometimes for me, it's specifically about like, what do all these eyes on me see 
And is it is it who I really am or is it who I intended for them to see? Do both of you feel like you create a persona when you walk on stage that's not you or just only part of you? Yeah, like an embellished me. Like, is it your best self? I hope not. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, it's parts of you and it's parts of you with like a shield in front of you too. I, th- I think all of us, or not all of us, I think I sometimes like hide the insecure parts of myself from stage or like mask them behind either confidence or humor or something to to make it both to me and I'm sure my projections to others like feel better or feel more relatable. There's something unique about a great song and a band that is really cooking that doesn't matter who's in the audience, they know that it's powerful. They know that it is important. And that is something that keeps bringing me back into this <laughs> life, regardless of how irresponsible it may be, is that feeling of momentary uh, mastery. Whereas a lot of times I feel like I'm helpless and drifting yeah. in a world that is out of my control, you know? Yeah, it's. It, I think it can be a dangerously good feeling to know that people yeah. bought tickets to come to see you because it's... Um, it isn't as I, I think it's not as deep as it feels sometimes. And it certainly right. is not enough to go on as like the number of depressive musicians can attest to. Like it doesn't it doesn't give you real lasting meaning in your life. But um, it's a good it can be a nice outlet for um, that kind of like play acting of power and play acting of importance and like even sometimes absurdity like sometimes it feels really nice to go up on stage and be weird in a way that you would feel bad doing in a one-on-one conversation because it would like make the other person feel uncomfortable I think when there's an when there's a multi-person audience I don't feel as bad about like being not making any sense and it can be understood as performance you know and I sometimes I think everybody should have that opportunity. Like everybody should have a moment in their life periodically where they get to like be on stage and feel what that feels like. Well, and it's so funny too, because like I wouldn't be who I am. I don't have a, a standard stage persona. I have basically only my stage persona with Mipso. And it's like, we're such a family and we, we know the roles we all play in like an interview or in the studio or when we're writing or, and especially so the thing we've done by far the most together, which is beyond, well, other than being in a van is being on stage. And so like when I think when I go on stage, I'm the parts of myself that I've either learned or convinced myself are, are what like both gels the band and stands out. And there's, I hope everyone has that feeling of like the unit um, strength of a, a well-oiled band. That's like, that's a, that's what makes it worth doing with the intensity. I think that all of our early years in bands are is knowing how you fit in to that really specific and singular thing. One of my favorite questions to ask on this show is if you can imagine that one moment where you felt the most powerful, like the venue, the show, the moment where you felt like you were the highest you've ever been on top of the mountain. And then also the worst, most low moment of a show because sometimes they can happen within days of each other I bet we I bet 
Well, I don't know, but I feel like we would probably this uh, the most powerful. We would probably have similar like overlapping shows. Um, and I'm thinking of like the first time that we played the cat's cradle or like the first time that we sold out the cat's cradle, which is like the venue a lot of us grew up thinking of as like the music venue in North Carolina. Um, and when we sold that out and felt like for the, it's a kind of like boxy club, you know, and like it's, it feels pretty like, um, it feels like a cave a little bit and the noise of the crowd really gets concentrated there. And I remember walking out on stage and feeling like that feeling when your eardrums are getting really tested from just like the sound of the crowd. And that felt both powerful, but also like just really bizarre. <laughs> you know, this, this way, I have a moment that's kind of both at the same time. We, this is one of our more absurd experiences was we were in the, on top of a huge bucket of chicken in the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade. And we had to lip sync our song for like 90 seconds on live TV, um, which was its own form of like power and humiliation, but especially so leading up to that point from Central Park all the way down to wherever the cameras are, they just have three of your songs on loop from this PA system as you're going down um, Sixth Avenue. And there's like throngs of people, none of whom knew who we were, none of them ever learned who we were, all of them just assumed we were famous. And so you'd like wave and they'd be like, yeah, but none of them had any idea. And we were aware of that irony, you know, the like illusion of fame. And, and you could hear a lot of them saying, who is that? Like you could hear it over the PA <laughs> playing. <laughs> Wait, why were you on a large bucket of chicken? We got, yeah, we got, we got K, somebody at KFC requested us to be, to play on their float. At the at the Macy's parade, <laughs> we don't know we don't know who we don't know how exactly that happened. It, but yeah, so I, I feel like that was a high and low of the power experience. That that is a really good one, Jacob. That's a good answer. There's a, a song you did, uh, "Let the Light In," off your new record that made me smile because it reminded me of that moment when I discovered uh, Wilco. Um, the drums in that song are so kind of sparse and like off kilter and weird that it fits so perfectly. And it reminds me of feeling out of place as like a teenager and f hearing this off kilter uh, version of roots music that Wilco was bringing forth and saying like, this is my music. Like I found my people, you know, and I didn't even know that Wilco was literally recording these songs six minutes from my house in Chicago, they sounded like they were from outer space, you know, but you talk about, you know, in that song sort of romanticizing stuff from your youth and then realizing that things don't necessarily hold up in the same way and that your romanticizing of nineties culture, um, you know, when you try to relive it now <laughs> as full grown adults, it's a bit odd, you know, and you have this funny video of you guys in front of this ice cream shop and the sweetness of the ice cream is just melting all over you. Like it's not as fun as it once was, you know, when you were kids. Tell me a little bit about that song and how it came together. That is a, another Joseph Terrell song. And um, yeah, it has a really, it ha the, from the first time he played it for us, 
we could feel the kind of like quirkiness of it. And um, I immediately thought about Wilco and thought about like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and, and some of the preceding albums and how they're, yeah, take these kind of like what could be very simple songs and could be kind of like rootsy songs and um, just kind of like make them plinkier and more disjointed. And um, on this one in particular, I think we were like wary of it becoming bluesy in a like kind of derivative way. And we were trying to stay in a kind of playful indeterminate zone while we were recording like we tried not to make too many references although I just made that Wilco reference but we tried not to like say let's make it like this or let's make it like that we were just like let's mess around like this on this verse and yeah keeping a lot of space in there and our drummer Jan Westerland especially with the guidance of our producer Sandro Perry they both crafted this amazing rhythmic part on there that I think anchors that especially well um, and I think we were not only thinking about how your memory of those of your childhood is always like a little off color or hard to like place on a spectrum of good to bad. And but also about how like the 90s in particular, I don't know what to make of that decade. Like when you think about, I guess, musically and culturally, I, I, it's hard to tell what the identity of that decade will be. And it's not like we were old enough for to experience like grunge. So we didn't feel that part of the nineties. Like I try to think about what I associate with the nineties and I was like a young kid for most of it. So I'm thinking about like, I don't know, like scrunchies and riding my bike and all of the kinds of things you see in that music video. And I had a happy childhood. It wasn't like nothing tragic ever happened to me. But it makes me feel like a little squirmy when I think about those times, just the same, not because of anything bad again, but just because I'm just like, I don't know. What did it all mean? Was, was it was it good? Did every was everything that happened good? And when you especially when you learn about like what was happening in the world in any decade, but in your in your childhood decade simultaneously that you were kind of unaware of and. You know, like what little I knew of 9-11 when that happened. It's just like it's it's so strange to think about the filters that you had on as a child and the wonder that you had for the world and also how little you knew of what was going on. Well, especially if, if you have a happy, relatively happy childhood, you realize that people around you were not having that same experience or were, uh, you know, losing family members. You know, Jacob, you lost your mother when you were young. You know, you have a completely different perspective about your youth and this sort of golden haze of yesteryear where it actually, you know, you may be happier now. Totally. My dad, we've been doing for this record, Zach, like, uh, I think we're calling them behind the song or something. It's just the four of us talking about the song and like a favorite memory of the recording and also some specific stuff about the writing. And my dad saw the one for Let a Little Light In and called me like pretty much immediately after it came out. And was just like, I just heard you guys explain. And it was basically what we've been talking about here. And he was like, you weren't happy. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I didn't write the song, dad. I just like, <laughs> I just understood it, you know? 
but it's it's a uh, but it hit him yeah but it's like it's interesting it, i think it's an interesting thing to to realize from either angle parent or child or uh whatever side of the relationship it may be but like yeah with with hindsight you can feel really differently about it or you can understand how you felt really differently could play your mom one song from the new record what would it be she would love i think she would love caroline and she would have loved just want to be loved why don't you introduce one of those uh to take us out yeah for sure um i'll do just want to be loved caroline's one of my favorite songs by joseph on the record and he would introduce it better than i could just want to be loved is a song um about maybe yearning for more acceptance uh, because you think that'll allow you to be a better, fuller version of yourself and realizing that it might not forcing you to grow in, in some important ways that, that actually bring you to that place. I think we all could use a little more of that right now. And I'm really, really ecstatic that you guys were able to put this out right now. I know it seems like a crazy time to put out a new record, but that push and pull of hope and hopelessness I can feel it in this record and and it tilts us towards hope. And I think that's really what we need right now because when this episode comes out, uh, we'll probably be a week or so away from the election. And um, we have to accept which way our country goes, one way or another. And that's really tough. It feels like being an American right now is like being a part of a family that we don't necessarily want to be a part of. Oh yeah. But we still have to accept that they are, we are all part of this crazy experiment. I hope that we do. I hope that we do that. Like try to try to reckon with that more than kind of like pulling for our favorite team, which is the way the election feels sometimes like, you know, regardless of who wins, we're very, are are the people around us have really radically different visions of what this country is and that'll be a problem whether or not Biden wins who and I hope that he does win but yeah I think the the deeper source of our hope has to come from somewhere else than the presidential candidate Libby what do you feel that song just want to be loved means I think that there's something really um brazen about the chorus of that song that a lot of writers like would be afraid to write because I think it feels really vulnerable to say the words I just want to be loved but I I think it would be that's inarguable I, I I'll be I'm like I put it as a challenge to anyone in the world to say they disagree with that sentiment we all 
are needing that probably more than we ever get it. And that I, that kind of yearning is like such a driving force in our lives. It's really the one universal that brings everyone together. I think people who are feeling lost and feeling uh, abandoned, it's because we want that love, the acceptance from our society, from our families, from our friends. And um, just saying it plainly out loud is hard to do. And you guys were able to do that. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening. Yeah, Zach, thanks for diving deep on these songs. It's, it's fun to have a um, in-depth conversation with someone else about them because we've been having a lot of that with ourselves, it feels like, over the last several months and weeks especially. And um, I think that battle of balancing the hope and hopelessness that you're talking about is exactly what we were like striving for. And I'm happy it feels that it leans towards hope. So Thanks for thanks for being in there with it. Sunday morning, I recall swearing off alcohol again. Lately, I've been waking up, shaking off the dream before it ends. I can't stop the feeling now. All I'm thinking of, I just wanna be loved. Just wanna be loved. I just wanna be loved. I just wanna be loved. Tuesday nights getting late. Check the rain. It won't break till ten. Been hanging around, getting out, looking pretty slim. I can't hear it coming down. All I'm thinking of, I just wanna be loved. I just wanna be loved. I just wanna be loved.
there you have it. Big thanks to Jacob and Libby for talking to me. Mipsomusic.com, that is their website. Their new record is called, you guessed it, Mipso. It's off of Rounder Records. And as you can imagine, it is a melancholy feeling to have a brand new, sparkly new record and no way to play it for people in real life. But if you go to their website, you can check out their live virtual concert experience that is coming October 29th at 8 p.m. There are tickets and limited edition merch bundles available to help support their new record. Please do that. They're an incredible group of guys and gal. And if you head over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you can see that back in 2019, there was a beautiful article about their song, People Change, which we discussed in this episode and how it is a different angle on how we lose people. Speaking of BGS.com, make sure you support the other wonderful podcasts on this lovely network, like The String, which features an episode with Wayland Payne, plus The Danburys, and a new episode of Harmonics with Beth Bears featuring Gina Chavez. As you may have heard at the top of this episode, my band Dust Bowl Revival will be hosting our fourth Sway at Home Fest, a virtual music gathering like no other. That will be October 29th and 30th on our Facebook and YouTube pages, featuring people who have been on this very show like Tim O'Brien, David Bromberg, Oliver Wood of the Wood Brothers, Aubrey Sellers, and more, including a wonderful Mexican artist named Silvana Estrada that I'm very excited to see. It would be remiss of me to not remind you one last time to please vote. November 3rd is the big day, and this episode was written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupitan. Please donate to the show at znlupitan at gmail.com on PayPal. We would really appreciate it. And big thanks to folks like Tyler Darling and Mike Resner for giving us kind reviews on iTunes. Please go on there and help spread the word. That's it for me. We'll see you next week on The Trail. <laughs>